We are continuing, uh, as you see on the front of your bulletin, in a series called Gospel Renewal. And that's our theme for this year, being renewed in the gospel of grace and what that means for our lives individually, what it means for our families, for our church family, just being continually renewed in the grace of God and what that really means for us. And so for uh, the next few weeks here, we're going to be looking at that subject of being renewed by grace, being renewed in the gospel and what that means, what we should be looking uh, for. Or what should we should be uh, understanding as far as how renewal looks in our life and how we can understand that more deeply. Uh, so we'll be doing that for the next few weeks until we uh, move past our men's retreat weekend with David here, and then we'll begin into another focus of our renewal for the year. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn this morning to a familiar text, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The text is also uh, in the inside cover of your bulletin. Listen as I read God's word. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Let us pray together. Father, we are so grateful that as we come now to your word, that it is powerful, it strikes deeply than anything else, more deeply into our hearts, the core of our very soul. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know us in ways that we are discovering daily. May we receive your insight, your understanding, your wisdom, your conviction by the power of your spirit as we spend time in your very truth, your very word. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems like today the need for substitutes is growing exponentially. Substitutes in all form and fashion. 
Just look at, for example, at the food and restaurant industry. I'm sure many of you here may fall into one of these categories. Maybe you fall in the category of needing to find for your own dietary needs things that are more sugar-free. Maybe you wrestle with that issue of, of uh, having to have insulin and diabetes and so forth. Maybe you find yourself now and wherever you are in your stage of life to be dairy-free is a need. Or maybe it's cholesterol-free. Or maybe dietary is gluten-free. It goes on and on and on. There's so many frees of different things now. And you go to restaurants and you see the menu actually kind of designed according to these certain needs. And we, we see even in the, the, the grocery stores, and you go to buy groceries, all these various types of whatever it is free from that particular thing because there's such a diversity. And so instead of just deciding that we're not going to eat those type of things, now the food industry is coming out with substitutes for that which you used to have. Maybe you can find gluten-free this and dairy-free this. Um, of course, there's so many alternatives now and substitutes available. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a helpful thing, especially when oftentimes just 20 and 30 years ago, there was no alternatives, hardly at all, for those who struggled in these particular dietary issues. But you know, when it comes to substitutes, it's okay for dietary needs and, and certain things, that, uh, foods that we eat or restaurants that we attend. But when it comes to substitutes, there are some things we need never get near a substitute for. And that's what I'm focusing on this morning from Galatians chapter 3. There is absolutely no substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no substitute, and we should seek to be careful as we're wanting to, and we're seeking together this year for God to renew us in his grace to understand what maybe we might have been substituting for being renewed in the power of God's grace, possibly. Maybe we have not realized what we have depended on or counted on in our life, or maybe been frustrated with in our spiritual walk with the Lord because we maybe didn't realize what type of a substitute we were accepting. And so I believe as the Apostle Paul wrote these words, he was addressing, of course, the church there in Galatia. The, those who were strongly from that background, understanding what the law was about, and having come out of that under that perspective of the law given to God's people being the means by which they were trying to attain God's favor, his acceptance, and making the law that which was the very thing they depended on to make their acceptance before God. And now, as they came to understand Christ and his accomplishment, his complete provision for them, some have turn back to trying to go to the old ways of seeking to be pleasing to God through their obedience to the law. Obedience to the law became a means by which their acceptance was seen. And Paul was <clears throat> trying to challenge them in a way that maybe we need to be challenged. Certainly, we don't have the same perspective of the law as the Jews did in the Old Testament. We, don't, we didn't come, many of us, 
maybe some, but most of us probably have not come out of a particular heritage like those in Galatia, where the law given through Moses, the law of God given to his people, has become in our past such a tremendous effort of uh, zeal and obedience and fervor that it's become actually a stumbling block for us. Maybe not that, but I do believe that we as Christians today in evangelical American Christianity at Christianity have made substitutes in our own walk with the Lord sometimes that we need to realize. <clears throat> so first we're asking the question, well, what is this substitute? What is the substitute that God wants us to see that we should not accept? Well, the substitute can be given all kinds of tags and uh, nomenclature, names, things that you might want to put upon it. But the essence of the substitute is moralism, religion, effort of obedience that we depend on so that God would accept us. The substitute is basically works of man wanting to please God and be accepted by him because I am putting forth the effort that God would reward me one day with eternal heaven. He would give me and grant me that blessing, that acceptance, because I basically have earned it. I've earned that right for eternal security before God. The substitute is basically religion or moralism. And what does that look like? Well, in verse 3, Paul is, of course, not addressing specifically moralism or a particular world religion as per se, but he is addressing earning our status before God by our effort. <clears throat> he says to the Galatians, are you so foolish that after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Trying to attain our spiritual walk with the Lord by our effort, that we relate to God based upon what we do and what we don't do. You know, moralism is a system of moral principles or rules by which a person would live. And they do this for many reasons. Guilt, oftentimes we feel guilty, even those who don't know the Lord have a conscience that God has put within them. Romans 1 speaks about that. God, that God has placed within every person conscience and awareness of right and wrong, generally through God's common grace. Sometimes it's just merely a desire that the world or those around us would give us respect because of our moral standing in our community. Sometimes it's for our reputation or a status place in our community or how we go about living, <clears throat> that we want either someone else's approval or others around us approval, or maybe someone in our family or our parents or a sibling's approval, so we seek to live a certain way that we think it's expected of us, and so we go down that road. Or maybe we just desire acceptance, of course, with God in a way that we believe we can attain that through our efforts. <clears throat> you know, the, the substitute that we're talking about here, moralism itself, 
is obedience to the law of God in order to gain God's acceptance. It's in order to gain his acceptance or actually to secure our eternal future somehow. <clears throat> it's an external compliance in God's, to God's commands through a heart that is actually self-seeking and doesn't realize it. Oftentimes, we don't even realize that we're seeking after things that our heart actually is trying to control or manage because we know that we have a moral deficiency. We know we have a moral uh, delinquency in our own person that we can't make up, and so we try to so often in different ways. <clears throat> you know, moralism or even religion, it can look very much like true faith in the Lord Jesus. It can look very much like true faith expressed in obedience to the law of God. Many, 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 many people every single Sunday sit in chairs or pews of a church all across our world, and they really believe that that is the means by which they will one day be in eternal heaven because of what they do rather than what's already been done for them. But you know, <clears throat> this substitute, though it looks very similar even to true faith sometimes, is very hard to recognize. Why is this substitute for true faith so hard to recognize? Because I believe it is sometimes, even in our own life as we try to go about following what God has for our own lives. It's hard to recognize, first, because it looks, like I said, so much like sometimes true faith. Paul mentions and uh, writes in verses 1 and 2, he says to the Galatians, you, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's confused you? Who's confounded you? Before your very eyes, was not Jesus Christ clearly portrayed as crucified? And then he, he goes on and asks them a rhetorical question. He goes, I'd like just to learn one thing, Galatian people. Did you receive the Spirit originally by observing the law? In other words, did the Spirit of God come to you because you obeyed the law and did the things you're supposed to do, checked off the list? Or did you receive the Spirit of God? Did God come to you in that way simply through the faith that you expressed in what he's done for you? By believing the gospel, what you heard. Which is it? Of course, it's a rhetorical question that he's asking, but he's doing it to make them think, to evaluate where they were in their walk with him. He was challenging them to understand and to think about what truly gospel the gospel was. You know, observance to the law externally, just externally, is what you would expect to find any Christian submitting themselves to. But the issue really isn't about the external that Paul's trying to address with these, his audience. He's trying to address the heart issue. You know, it's hard to recognize sometimes this substitute because it's all about the motive. It's all about the heart and about what the Spirit of God is doing to the heart of a person. It's about my heart. It's about your heart. And so it's hard we can't read someone's mind. You can't read someone's heart, their motives, where they are in their walk with God, where they are in their relationship with the Lord, nor should we try to do so. And so it's very hard to know exactly what is going on when it comes to the heart 
and relating to the Lord Jesus. It's hard to recognize. It's hard to even understand sometimes our own motives to really understand that we often are tempted to be motivated in our relationship with God based upon our own performance, our works before God. And it's not easily comprehended or understood sometimes. Verse 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Another question, kind of rhetorical. He's basically asking a question but making a statement. You're never going to attain your goal by human effort, is really what he's saying. There's just no way. It's not meant to be. God never desires for us to attain spiritual renewal, spiritual growth by just merely our strength and our effort, not looking to the Spirit and to what Christ has done in us and what he will do through us. What makes it so hard is after we've understood that we're saved by grace through faith, so many Christians move away from that understanding that it's by grace through faith. And we seek to grow or renew ourselves in the, in the Christian life by human effort. We seek to grow by human. I understand that God saved me by grace, and I believe that by faith. And that kind of happened when I was 12, 15, 28, whatever age that happened. But now, as a, as a Christian, it's all about what I've got to do now. And I've got to buckle down, and I've got to try harder, I've got to work harder, and when it doesn't seem to be working, then I've got to work even harder. And that's not at all how we go about being renewed in the gospel of grace. That's a substitute that God never desires for us to try to utilize because it has no power. That effort has no power. So the substitute, we've understood now a little bit clearly, but why we must not accept this substitute? Why must we not accept that substitute in our walk? Well, first of all, it deceives us. It deceives us into thinking that we are actually being spiritual. It deceives us to thinking that we are actually renewing ourselves spiritually, when in actuality, we're not being renewed by the Spirit of God at all. We're merely performing as much as we possibly can on a treadmill of performance, morally, if we think spiritually, so that God would be pleased more with us. Verse 10, Paul says, Now all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now it's important to see what Paul says in that verse. He doesn't say all who observe the law are under a curse. That's not what he says because we certainly need to be observing the law as Christians. The law was given to us as a guide for believers to lead us in what righteousness is and following and worshiping God, our Creator, our Father. And we must be about following and submitting our hearts and our lives to the law of God. As Christians, we must do this. Paul says, though, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. That's a key word, rely. You see, that's the struggle here, is that they, the Galatians were relying on obedience to the law. Not, a, not obedience in itself. They were relying on 
the law and its compliance. And Paul says, when you do that, it places you under a curse. It places you under a curse. So what we must realize is that we cannot rely on our law obedience in order to be renewed spiritually. We certainly need to have in our renewal process spiritually obedience to the law. But not from our heart do we seek to rely on that obedience as the very sometimes sole means by which we were able to accomplish spiritual renewal or spiritual growth. You see, moralism focuses on a person just trying harder. That's what it does. Obedience to the law, relying on on obedience to the law, is just about trying harder, improving ourselves or our status before God. That is what Paul is trying to address, is the heart motive of reliance on our observance of the law. You know, our obedience to God's commands sometimes become the basis of how we actually relate to God and how we approach Him. So maybe you felt something like, this. Well, let's see. You miss attending church last week, or you missed it about three weeks ago, so you're going to make sure you go at least four or five, maybe even eight Sundays in a row, because you missed one back here, and you want to make that up. Because God's not pleased that you missed church, especially for the reason that you missed church, so you're going to make it up for sure, and he'll, he'll be happy then. Or maybe you miss time with the Lord, reading his word in a quiet time or in some prayer, Matter of fact, this week, half the days are hardly even spent any time. And so, you know that's just an absolutely horrible thing to do. You've known that God would, you you believe God would be so upset with you. So, you make sure and you, you read twice as much every day this coming week. And you pray twice as long that you did typically pray. Because you've got to make up the, the gap that you left from not spending time with the Lord last week. Ever felt like that? I know you have, because I have. All of us struggle with that at times, do we not? Well, maybe you missed putting some money in the plate last Sunday, or you haven't done it for a few weeks now. Different reasons, whatever, so now you're going to be sure that I'm going to give more next month. I'm going I'm to really go out there and, and try to not spend it like I have been. I'm just going to, because God definitely is going to be pleased if I give more than missing like I did. I mean, the list, I can keep going on and on. You know, these are things that we do. Why do we do this? We do this because we believe that God is basically angry with us. And he is wrathful towards us because we constantly are messing up. We're constantly not keeping up with his commands and what he expects and it requires of us. And if you're honest, hopefully you are, isn't it exhausting? Isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's exhausting. You can't keep up with it because you never were supposed to. You see, God didn't make, he didn't create you that way. He didn't design you that way. That you, by your own effort, would have to make up what you lacked morally, spiritually. That's not what God desires. So, what's the curse then? 
Well, Paul says that's a curse. When you rely on that, it's a curse. What happens in this kind of approach before God? Well, see, our relational gauge with God, this is important, our relational gauge with God is always dependent on how well or how poorly we're following his commands. So how do you feel about your relationship with God? Well, hold on, let me check and see how I've been doing with these things. Then I'll I'll tell you. That's really what it's based upon. And so it's either doing really good or it's doing really bad according to your ability to keep the commands of God. God is, in a sense, our corrections officer. He's the one that has the billy stick hanging off his waist and he walks up and down the corridors of our life just watching and see how we're doing and making sure kind of the, the large eye is always watching our mistakes. So in a sense, we're kind of in prison. We're in the prison of moralism and self-righteousness. We're in the prison of being contained by our own human efforts of morality. So what is the curse? The curse is trying to perfectly obey the law with an imperfect condition. That's the curse. That's a curse. Try to perfectly obey the law. Go ahead. Feel free. Every single time you do, what happens? Have you ever done it? Not once. You may get on a good trajectory. You may have a good start, but it doesn't take long, and you will fall flat on your face. Every time. Eventually, it gets us. Because that's the curse. We cannot perfectly keep the law. And God knows that. He knew that the moment Adam fell. He knew it before Adam fell. And he knows that we cannot keep it perfectly. It has no power. That that curse, that seeking to rigorously Obey has no power. Colossians 2, Paul writes this. So so poignant of a description of what we're talking about here. Paul says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom. They look good with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack, and this is so important, any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There is absolutely no power and no value in submitting to rules and regulations that either the church or others put on you or even you put on yourself because it cannot constrain the heart. It can't constrain that nature that still is there. It has no power to do so. We know that. We know it has no power. I've uh, mentioned maybe some of you this illustration before. I'm not sure if many of you remember it. I've I've recently uh, used it when I was on our elder retreat. And uh, when I was in youth ministry in Florida, we did a camp every summer. And the camp was an interesting camp. It was uh, actually at a, uh, a certain denomination's uh, camp where 
doesn't need to know what the denomination is, but that particular denomination focused very strongly on even certain dietary laws in their faith and how they went about their faith. And so uh, we used their camp. It was a great group of people and the staff and so forth. But the director of the camp was kind of like, um, he was a pastor in that particular uh, uh, denomination. And, and he was the head of the camp. Great guy. We loved him. We had many years of great ministry together and, and using their camp for those two weeks every summer with all kinds of youth all over the state of Florida. I was the program director for the camp. And so I would show up oftentimes before Monday, on Sunday, waiting for everybody to show up, and me and a couple of guys would get ready for the program planning for the week. And so we often would stay in a separate cabin from the, from the kids and the students, the middle school, high school students, and we would kind of get things set up. And, and so sometimes we'd come into the head office where the, they had a, a refrigerator for staff and people that could use it. And so we would stick some of our kind of snacks for the week, things we wanted to, we wanted to enjoy for the week into the refrigerator there in the, in the office, the camp office. So we did so on Sunday afternoon, and, and so uh, we came back Sunday night because we had done a lot of work that, that day and getting ready for the camp and getting ready for Monday morning, and we noticed that this big bag, of, I think it was like Snickers or Musketeer Bar or something, had been ripped open. And me and my buddy thought, I said, did you already break into the, the candy bars? He went, I haven't been in here at all. And I go, well, I haven't been in here at all. Well, who, who in the world would just bust this open? Cause, and so um, we also knew that no one on that camp staff would have busted that bag open because that for them was absolutely, you don't do that. that, that it had greater, they had certain faith consequences in their understanding to actually eat those candy bars. So we thought, well, this doesn't make any sense. So we asked, went to the camp, the, the head of the camp said, do you, do you have any idea who might have, I mean, is it, is it locked, the office, or who might be getting into our snacks for the week already? I mean, somebody, he, he looked at us and went, I'm not sure. We said, well, okay. Well, then the next morning came at breakfast, and he walked over to our table at the head of the camp, and he goes, I need to talk to you guys for a second. We said, yeah, what's up? He goes, <clears throat> um, I, I ate a couple of your candy bars. <laughs> and we said, you did? Had they taste? <laughs> no, we kind of ribbed him about it. But he felt terrible. He felt terrible. But he knew... You know, it's all by grace, and we talked about that. But his heart was so convicted because he was, he basically had not been able to restrain his desires for something very simple, right? He couldn't restrain. But you know, many of us struggle with desires, desires that are even hurting us. And we seek just to try all types of ways for those desires to be stopped, to be changed. And yet we know God offers only one thing that can truly stop. And that is his very spirit, his power, his very self. And so we look to the spirit of God. We look to Christ himself in us to be the very one that gives us understanding of what it means to trust and to rely on him. You know, <clears throat> sometimes the mindset of trusting in what Christ has done for us and truly accepting that God has done everything we need in his grace for renewal and for a relationship with him, sometimes 
that mindset, that understanding, and living daily according to that understanding and that trust is best understood when others, especially in the body of Christ, are seeking to come alongside and minister to us. You see, when we struggle with someone else trying to minister to us, if you ever struggle, someone wants to come, maybe you're not doing well, you're physically, something's wrong, or, or maybe you just need some encouragement and others come alongside in the body to either make a meal or, or help you out with some house cleaning or do something for you to help you to come alongside of you, and you reject that and you're like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I don't need any help, I don't need any help. And we push people away and not receive it. I think... We do that, I know I do that, because we're so stubbornly independent in our own strength. We don't want others to sense that we need anything. So we don't go and share our needs. And when, when people actually recognize them because we're not that good at hiding them, really, then we actually say, no, I'm, I'm fine. And that's not true. We're not fine. And we really need each other. God's designed the body to be that way. You know, basically it's this. Ask yourself, how well are you able to receive unconditional love from someone else? It's to that degree it'll reveal just how well you grasp the gospel of grace. If you're not able to receive their help, you probably aren't willing to receive Jesus' help either. Very well. They go hand in hand. How we relate to others and how we relate to Jesus are very much hand in hand. And so, if we relate to Jesus by, yes, I need you, I depend upon you, I must have all that you have done for me, we hopefully will also be open to others coming in his representation, which he's called for them to come and to help us as well. And we need to receive that. We need to receive that. <clears throat> the second thought, though, is that it undermines the gospel of grace. You see we can't accept this substitute because it undermines the gospel itself. Verse 11, Paul says, Now clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the, the righteous will live by faith. You see, the Galatians, they were trusting in law, reliance upon law obedience to make them right with God. And that's what we've got to be careful not to do. How does this law of reliance exactly undermine the gospel of grace? How does it undermine it exactly? Well, it's like this. Moralism seeking to obey, to rely upon obedience in that way, it seeks to bring this true standard and existence, the nature of God's holiness and who he is, it seeks to bring it down from where it truly is. It brings God's holiness down to a manageable system that we can manage God himself. We can manage the requirements that he has placed through his law. And we bring his holiness down to where I can actually manage this now, we think. And we think that we're raising the standard of God's law when we seek to keep it and let others know that we're keeping it, but actually we're lowering the standard to a level in which we think we can accomplish in our own strength. We rely on our good works in order to gain either man's or God's approval, whichever. But in verse 13, Paul says this. 
He says, Christ redeemed us from this curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, that's it. We must look to Jesus who has become a curse even though we have struggled with this curse in our own hearts. The problem is that we look sometimes at Jesus as our example. Jesus is your example. And when we seek to try to be like our example, what do we do? Fail every time. If Jesus is just your example, well then you're still pretty powerless because you're not going to be able to follow his example perfectly. His example was perfect. We know that. We read the Gospels. We understand what Scripture says. We know the very nature of who Jesus was, his very person, God incarnate. So if he's just your example, you're still in a very difficult place morally and spiritually. But, but if Jesus isn't just your example, but instead he's your substitute, Now that's a whole different understanding. He takes your place before the law. He takes your place before a holy God. He is the substitute in your standing. That's the difference. And so when we are cursed, we're not cursed. Jesus is cursed. He takes that curse. He takes that judgment upon himself as our substitute. And that is what it means when it says he became a curse for us. He took on all that we deserved. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him, that is Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes on that curse that we deserved and we receive his righteousness that we didn't deserve. That's what the gospel tells us. One of my uh, mentors and friends, Tom Wood, said this. Tom Wood says, I'm convinced that if the gospel of grace doesn't take your breath away, something else will. And this world has lots of something else's. I used to think that what God wanted for me was to try harder get more committed, deny myself, keep my sin under control, and then I would begin to see change. But I'm learning that the fight in the Christian life is the fight of faith. And to believe the gospel of grace really is true. To really believe Jesus is your substitute, to really believe he has done it all, that's the fight of faith, to believe. Just as Paul said, believe what you've heard, believe what is true the gospel. You know, it's, <clears throat> it's easy to look at someone else's life and identify maybe where they're not compliant with the law of God. Some of you are now in college. Some of you are back from college for the weekend, and we're glad you're back worshiping again, but you're about ready to leave to go back for, the week, back for this week of classes and so forth. If you're in college or even whatever school you may attend, high school or middle school or elementary school, you know, you're in that environment in school, like I was when I went away my freshman year. And I never forget when I went away, I was pretty much 
very different from most of the people in my dorm in college, most of the guys as we played sports. And, and I looked around, and I could easily identify all of their, quote, irreligious activity that they were involved in. It wasn't hard, and I could simply see what I knew was not pleasing to God. And so, for me, the harder thing was to understand my own life and look at my own life, to identify my religiosity, which is what I struggled with. In other words, it was clear they really didn't want to rely on God and didn't rely, did not want to rely on Jesus in their life. That was pretty obvious, not hard to identify. But for me, who got up and went to church every Sunday my freshman year and did all the stuff I was still supposed to do because I knew that's what God wanted me to do, and certainly nothing wrong with that, but I began to depend and rely on those things with, for my identity. And that, and that became basically my religious high ground in which I looked at everyone else almost sometimes with rejection or disdain or even some sense of arrogance because I was keeping my nose clean. But you see, I wasn't depending upon Jesus either. They weren't, but neither was I. I was depending upon my law obedience. I was depending upon my ability to do the right thing. And my renewal was not really spiritual renewal at all. It was simply compliance with externally trying to be better than them. You know, it's, it's easy to identify an irreligious person and see how they seek to be their own king and control their own life without relying or depending upon anything that Jesus has done for them. But a religious person, a person who seeks even moralism in their life, will essentially do the very same thing. I know I've done that. A person that just seeks to be religious does so in order to also control their own life and avoid having to depend upon Jesus as well and what he's done on the cross for them. Both are avoiding the cross. Both a religious and an irreligious person are in no better standing before God himself. But the gospel of grace and what it renews inside of our hearts, that is what changes us. You see, we can't be our own savior. We can't seek to rescue ourselves. And if we seek to avoid what Jesus has done, whether through religion, religious efforts, or through irreligious efforts... Both will fail, and they both will expose where we truly are. God wants our hearts. He wants us to accept no substitute beyond anything that Jesus, his own son, has done for us. Christ has done it all, and we accept that. There is no need for anything else.